Hi, this is Eugene, and I just wanted to say it's a huge honor for us to be able to bring this episode to you in which Paul speaks with Mary Murakami, a now 92-year-old Japanese-American woman who lived through the internment camps. It's the first of what we hope will be many first-hand accounts, and there's something really special about hearing these stories orally that makes them feel uh, real in a way that, you know, sometimes written words can feel distant. So we'll be posting a raw, unedited version of this conversation to preserve it in its entirety. And if you are interested in learning more, you can definitely check that out. But without further ado, here's Paul with Mary. occasion to have this interview because just a few days ago uh, on February 19th is the day of remembrance for uh, the Japanese American community for executive order 9066 which led to the forced displacement of more than 120,000 Japanese Americans uh, American citizens who were displaced into internment camps uh, during World War II so Without further ado, uh, thank you so much, Mary, for being here. Well, thank you for asking me. Could you please begin by telling us a little bit about your family and your childhood? Well, my uh, full name is Mary Tamaki Murakami. I was born on June 9, 1927 in Los Angeles, California. And I was living in San Francisco, Japanese town on December 7, 1941. I am the middle child. I have a brother and sister above me and a brother and sister below me. We lived in Los Angeles. My father had the vegetable section of a store in those days back in the 30s. Stores were three separate sections and owned by three different owners. The vegetable section was the part my father owned, and uh, we had a comfortable life because we didn't realize that actually we were considered poor, but my father always had enough food to feed us. We lived in a white community. He would take us into the Los Angeles Japanese town. And so on weekends, we would visit friends. But growing up in Los Angeles, I only had uh, other type of friends. Most of them were white. In fact, I think that's the only race that I grew up with. And so in this life, For me, moving to San Francisco was very important, not knowing that living in Japanese town would be a benefit for me. I would have Japanese friends and understand that they would even mix Japanese with English, which I felt was very strange in those days. 
how how was it growing up uh, after you moved to San Francisco's Japantown? We had a complete change where all our neighbors were uh, Japanese or Japanese Americans. And uh, since I lived in Japanese town, the stores would blast uh, Japanese songs and Japanese military march songs. So I learned the Japanese military march sounds before I even learned the American military march. And so it was a total immersion, which was very different from what I had grown up. I moved to San Francisco when I was about eight years old. And then if I uh, read correctly, you were 14 years old uh, in yes. the time of Pearl Harbor? On, uh, when Pearl Harbor happened on December 7th, I was 14. Yeah, and, and could you, if you remember uh, about your experience during that time, could you share a little bit about what you remember on that day? On December 7th, we uh, were stunned by the uh, information about Pearl Harbor. But my father had told us, and our family always had discussions at the dinner table of current events, and he felt that eventually Japan and the U.S. would go to war. Uh, he was at church that day, and we ran down to tell him to come home and listen to the radio. And uh, since he had believed there would be a war, we told him he was right. And he did not believe that the U.S. and Japan would ever fight even if he thought of it from the current events that were happening. He said to us that the U.S. was too strong of a country for Japan to ever win a war. And so he did not believe that what we were saying until that evening when Post Street became very quiet. And Post Street is one of the main streets, so we knew it was different. So we looked out our window. We lived on the third floor. And so we could see everything. And we looked up from within our block. We saw the U.S. Army soldiers. They were stationed up from one sidewalk to the other, blocking all cars from entering and all people from entering Japanese town and they were armed, and we thought their rifles were facing towards us. And that is when my father finally believed that we were at war, and he told us that it was gonna be a very difficult time for us. And then on February 19th, Executive Order 9066 was posted. How did life change for you and your family um, after the attack on Pearl Harbor? Well, until Executive Order 9066 was posted, things were very quiet. And we knew something was going to happen, but we didn't know what it was. Rumors were spreading through Japanese town. Uh, we continued life. We went to school. My father went to work. But everything changed when the executive order 9066 was posted. And uh, 
I saw the notice on the telephone poles near my house, and that was the way the government continued to communicate with us. After that order was posted, things got pretty hectic because it said that we could only take what we could carry, and we had to get rid of everything. And these are some of the effects on my family while we were getting ready. Uh, The curfew notices began to be posted, and they first started in miles, and so my sister could not go to work, so she came home from Palo Alto. And then as the miles got closer to my house, then my father could no longer go to work, and my brother couldn't go to high school. But in the meantime, we had to get rid of all all the furniture. Mm -hmm. But we noticed these men going through Japanese town, and they were going from house to house. And what they were doing was buying your furniture, but they wouldn't buy things individually. They bought things by the household. So my father sold seven rooms of furniture. But they came back the next day, and they sold the piano in front of us for what they had paid my father for all the furniture. And another thing was that the rumors were spreading throughout Japanese town. Some of them said that, you know, we were actually going to be taken to a desert and be killed. My parents didn't believe all that, but they did believe that the children would be put in one camp and the parents would be put in the other. So they went to a photographer and had their picture taken, mm-hmm. uh, five copies, and they gave each of us a copy of that picture so that in case we were separated. And at that time, they decided to tell us our family history. So they sat us down, and we heard for the first time that my older sister was my half-sister, that her mother had died in childbirth with the second child, and they both died. My father went back to Japan and married my mother. But what was interesting to us five kids was there was a box of metal blocks that always traveled with us, and it came from Los Angeles to San Francisco with us. And it was, uh, at that time, we, it was heavy, and it was always stored in the closet. And one time, we had my younger brother get on top of my older brother, Joe, to reach the box, but he said it was too heavy to bring down, but he says there's writing on it. And it, it was a box about, 12 inches by 8 inches. So it was a pretty big box. And we were told at that time those were uh, Lily's mother's ashes. And uh, there was no way to take it to camp with us because it was too heavy. Mm -hmm. And Lily's mother was... Lily was my older sister, Ah, who was my half-sister. It was her mother's ashes. And I assumed the baby that died. Yeah. And uh, so somehow my father, there is a, in Koma, a Japanese cemetery. And 
he had the ashes buried at Colma. Well, Mary, I think that's really powerful for me to hear because, you know, you were saying your parents uh, were getting ready to go to the camp after they got the notice, right? Yes. And they thought there might be a chance, you know, they had heard rumors that parents and children might be separated. So there was that uncertainty. But I feel like with a lot of stories of family separation, for example, with refugee crises or during the war, it almost happens overnight. So there's no time for parents or families to prepare. Yes. But we were one of the last ones to be notified to enter. Yeah. But I mean, do you think there was a sense of... I feel like a lot of articles that talk about this, they say, you know, there's this thing in Japanese culture, this, you know, shoganai, shikataganai, yes. right? You can't, there's nothing you can do about it. So just got to follow the authority. But I, I just want to dig a little deeper and see if, was there some kind of sense of resistance in your, with your parents of, you know, why are we going along with this plan of that, that might separate our family? Or, you know, did they think, it might end and just be temporary. Uh, so is that why they were going along with it? or No. Uh, Do you know what your parents in, were thinking? In my case, our family, they wanted to prepare in case we were stranded away from our parents. So the, all these instructions were given to us of well, how we should look after our younger brothers and sisters to make sure that everybody at least will be put together. And that's why they told us our family history. And uh, we were fortunate that, or unfortunate because Early on after 9066 was posted, which was February, and we weren't taken until May, and that gave us those months to get ready, whereas other families were taken shortly after that, yeah. and that's why they were put in the horse stalls and topaz, whereas if you came in later, they had to they couldn't put all of us in horse stalls, so they had to make temporary barracks in Tamfran, which was our waiting place for the permanent camps to be made. So we were fortunate that we were one of the later families to leave because they started with the outer areas and they kept closing in. And so when the day came that the notice went up that we have to sign up for the camp, my father wanted to take care of these two widowed families in the church. So he decided the safest way to get the three families to go together so my father could manage three families was that one was sign up before my sister who was signing us up and then one after. Well, that night before we went to camp, Western Union went through Japanese town and we could see the uh, bicycle Western Union guys going from this house to that house. And we didn't know what was happening. But when we got ready to get on the buses, we realized what those Western Union telegrams were. In our case, it went to every, the family that registered before my sister and the one after my sister were told to go to a different assembly center. And we never saw those families again. 
So we had enough time to get ready. I mean, I know it's hard to condense or just briefly, you know, talk about three years of your life, especially at a time uh, at somewhere like the Topaz Camp. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, yeah, your your time, your experience at at the Topaz Camp. Yeah, but we went to uh, Tanfran first, the Mm -hmm. assembly centers. There were 16 of those. But my husband's family decided they were a farming family in Gilroy area. And a bunch of them decided to leave the west coast of California because there was an order before we were taken into the camps. If you move further into California, you will not be taken. So Ray's family moved east. But before the executive order was completed, they decided to rescind the part about having people who had moved that they won't go to camp. They decided all of California would be under the order. So Ray's family and other families who moved were sent to a camp that wasn't the camp for their area in San Jose because the San Jose people went to Heart Mountain. Those people that... Ray's family moved to were mm-hmm. sent to Tule Lake. Mm. So families were separated as a result of that as well. Yeah. As a result of being arbitrarily sent yes. to different camps. But my, my, what really struck me was I was reading about the camps and how the U.S. government uh, officials thought about the camps. And it's almost like they didn't keep it top secret because they wanted to show that this was like a you know, all American, yes. like a model that, you know, they wanted to show that Japanese Americans were actually model citizens. Yeah, supposedly learning from the camp and having a great time. And I'm just wondering if this was actually the case of no, but or, you, or why, why do you think they decided well, to pre- the, present it in this way? They represented us that way by not showing the guard towers or the barbed wires, because the government regulation was to show the barracks, never the surrounding areas. So it looks peaceful. But if you wanted a true picture of the camps, you had to show the guard towers and the barbed wire. Yeah. And is is there anything else you would like to share from your time um, at, at Topaz? You know, you were talking about earlier how you had no sense you had lost your sense of privacy and identity and yeah it started in uh, the day you were put on the bus because you lost your identity by being becoming a number our family was 22416 i was the letter e because of the place of birth rank in the family and so you were tagged and and at the beginning of you know in 1942 in, in May or or when you first came to the camp you were with your family your whole uh, your parents and your four siblings um, but you mentioned that by the time you know the war was over and you got out of the camp there was only was it four four, four. of you that remained so what what happened well to uh, your the rest of your siblings there was the questionnaire that happened in camp and by the time it came to our camp it was mumbling and everything but not outrage like other camp but question 27 and 
question 28 were the main things that was the most upsetting in the camp to me because I felt that I proved my loyalty by going quietly into the camps. Yeah. But then for them to question my loyalty to the United States was just too much. But my father said, as a family unit, we all have to say yes. And shortly after that, some of the youth decided that they would volunteer for the army. But then the government started the draft in the army, in the camps. So my brother was drafted right after high school and so he had to leave so that left two of them gone and I always mentioned that I think the government should have done more for the draftees because they were young men who were going to go serve the U.S. but when they departed from the camp I still remember my parents on one side the barbed wire saying goodbye to my brother and i always felt the government could have done more and taken the parents at least out of the camps and let them say a proper goodbye were you able to say goodbye to your brother when he was drafted yeah but on the other side of the barbed wires yeah fortunately you you were able to reunite with both your siblings then, right, after yeah, the war? Yeah, after the war, yeah. eventually. My sister never came back to the West Coast. When my brother was discharged from the Army, we had already been settled. And then the reason I left was the education in camp was not good, and I was uh, I wanted to go to college. But in camp, by the time I became a senior, They wanted me to start ninth grade over because I had used up too many of the academic courses and Mm -hmm. they said there wasn't enough. So my father found an engineer in camp. He was willing to teach me higher math Mm -hmm. and how to use the slide rule and everything. And uh, then I studied on my own. And so the opportunity came in... uh, the winter of 44 when Cal and uh, another private school sent in uh, students to invite us back because they said California was going to reopen. So California opened up in January and I started Cal in February without ninth grade education or a 12th grade education. (laughs) So I was the third one to lead the family. So it left my parents, my younger brother and sister to leave camp together when Topaz closed September yeah. 31, 1945. Wow, and, and that is, I, I guess, that even though you had to go through family separation in such difficult times, I'm, I'm glad you were able to reunite in the yes. end. Yes, yes. And you know, leave the camp and reunite with your siblings and to see your parents again, but... Do you know of any other stories of families who weren't able to see their families again? Oh, yes, because of the questionnaire 27 and 28. Families were broken up because some of the men said they will serve, others said they won't serve. And so those families were completely s- separated. Yeah, speaking of the loyalty 
question 27 yeah. and 28 you know if i remember correctly 27 refers to fighting are you willing to serve, serve the, military? In the u.s army and 28 is, is the elite. Uh, yeah. are you willing to give up your uh, allegiance to the Japanese emperor, which meant our parents would be without a country because they could not become, by law, U.S. citizens. I see. So then they had to change the questionnaire 28 a little bit so our parents could answer it. Yeah, that just reminded me, you know, I actually uh, only became a U.S. citizen. I naturalized last year. Uh Uh-huh. And at the naturalization ceremony, they make us... Uh, we have to take an oath of allegiance. Yes. And it's, I remember it very clearly. You have to, actually, I brought a copy right here, so I don't have to recall it, but it says, I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom, or which I have heretofore have been a subject or citizen, that I will support and defend the Constitution and laws of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I will bear arms on behalf of the United States when required by the law. And and it ends with, and that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. So help me God. And that, to be honest, I, I mean, I guess it's, it doesn't matter anymore because I'm already a citizen, but I had a really hard time seeing that oath. Well, you and it's a lot ma- to ask. Yeah, you could imagine our parents being told to give up all allegiance because yeah. they could not, they would be people without a country. Right. So you could see why some of the camps, there were rioting and problems. Yeah. And it was a very difficult period of time. So I think it's very timely again that, you know, you grew up born and raised in California, went to Cal, and I was just reading the news, and just a couple days ago, the California State Assembly, they passed this resolution, right, I think unanimously, that apologized uh, formally to the Japanese Americans for the camps. And the first one who called me was my granddaughter, Caroline. She says, you finally got this, one of these apologies. Yeah, and you know, there's there's another one, right? The famous the Civil Liberties Act yeah, yes. under President Reagan yes. in '88. But I, I'm just curious, what you, how these apologies make you feel? Well, are, the apologies yeah. were very important, but uh, they said unless we got this monetary, it doesn't mean anything because uh, this country looks at everything through monies and uh, therefore that's why they asked for the 20,000 but by 1988 and finally when that 20,000 came most of us were settled financially and otherwise it would have meant so much more if they gave us a little more money when we left camp not 25 dollars because even in those days, $25 didn't get you anything. And what is so critical about the 20000 is that there was no help for us when we left the camps. Yeah. And things were more miserable after leaving camp than Topaz or prior to getting ready. 
it was the worst time for most of the people and the emphasis is always on getting ready for camp and going to camp but hardly any emphasis on what happened to us after camp and if there was any financial aid then it would have made us able to find our way much easier because discrimination by then had been rampant and uh, the ones who really needed the 20,000 like my father he was gone and most of the Issei's who really suffered and were trying to reestablish the family they were uh, had died in the meantime and so when you're giving the 20,000 to survivors the children who were born in camp would get the 20,000 and their parents who really needed it would get not 20,000 but $25 Mary what what really struck me as well I was uh, last weekend, as I told you, I was in San Francisco, yes, in uh, Japantown, actually, and I went to, I think it was the 71st uh, National Day of Remembrance, 78th, 78th National Day of Remembrance ceremony mm-hmm. uh, Bay, for the Bay Area, yeah, and it was really powerful for me and inspiring, not just because of um, the stories that people shared the firsthand accounts uh-huh. um, and how that history was remembered. But also the theme was, you know, to make sure that this history is not repeated again. Yes. And I think what I've just noticed is the Japanese American community, you know, especially you, Yeah, I mean, you are retired now. You're, you know, more, I, I don't want to disclose your age, but oh, well, I'm 92. <laughs> you're 92 years old. And, you know, people, I feel like, most people your age can take a break and have it easy and there's no there's no reason for them to need to speak yeah. out so what really struck me was the solidarity of the Japanese American community in San Francisco and DC you know all over the country and you know there's the uh two for solidarity event coming up in in DC outside the White House yes. in June uh, with what's going on more recently yes right with uh families being separated at um at the u.s mexico border so i I mean i just wanted to ask you from a personal level why do you think what what is kind of motivating you causing you to continue to speak out about your story and about this issue the main reason is is that you should learn from history but this country does not learn from its past history and the only way to get that across and hopefully teach them so it won't occur again is to have survivors speak. And there aren't too many survivors. Uh, There are the young ones who don't remember camp and the ones that were in their 20s who were just starting their profession they're mostly gone. And one time I spoke at a church and realized one of my older sister's friends who was in camp with us was in the audience listening to me. And so I came home and told my husband, I have to call her. I shouldn't be speaking. She should be speaking. It's her church. 
And before I could call her, she called me to thank me for speaking. And I asked her, why are you thanking me? Why aren't you speaking? She says, it was too difficult for her to speak about camp. So anyone older than I am who survived the camp, they lost much more personally. I lost things by the family, but these were young adults. And you have to remember most of the parents of the children were at the prime of their occupation and they never recovered. And I don't want to see another group of people having to deal with this. It's completely uncalled for. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm just so grateful uh, for for people like you who, you know, not only speak out on behalf of your own community, but on others as well. It's more important now with the other who need help. And they may not know that this country has done it before, and the only way they'll learn is to hear it from us. Yeah. But there's very few of us left who are vocal enough to speak. Quite a few of them will never speak. listening and if you're interested in hearing more stories of family separation please follow us on instagram at divided families podcast if you enjoyed this episode please rate us on apple podcasts and you can follow us on your preferred streaming platform thanks as always to flannel albert for the music and see you next time